Chapter 3 of the Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Heck. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness, by Horace Keppert. Chapter 3 Personal Kits. It is hard to generalize on outfits, because men's requirements vary according to the country traversed, the season of the year, and personal tastes. Let no one imagine that he must lay in everything mentioned here for any one trip. The Prime Necessity One's health and comfort in camp depends very much upon what kind of bed he has. In nothing does a tenderfoot show off more discreditably than in his disregard of the essentials of a good night's rest. He comes into camp after a hard day's tramp, sweating and tired, eats heartily, and then throws himself down in his blanket on the bare ground. For a time he rests in supreme ease, drowsily satisfied that this is the proper way to show that he can rough it, and that no hardships of the field can daunt his spirit. Presently, as his eyes grow heavy and he cuddles up for the night, he discovers that a sharp stone is boring into his flesh. He shifts about and rolls upon a sharper stub or projecting root. Cursing a little, he arises and clears the ground of his tormentors. Lying down again, he drops off peacefully and is soon snoring. An hour passes and he rolls over onto the other side. A half hour and he rolls back again into his former position. Ten minutes and he rolls again. Then he tosses, fidgets, groans, wakes up, and finds that his hips and shoulders ache from serving as piers for the arches of his back and sides. He gets up, muttering, scoops out hollows to receive the projecting portions of his frame, and again lies down. An hour later he reawakens, this time with shivering flesh and teeth a chatter. How cold the ground is! The blanket over him is sufficient cover, but the same thickness beneath, compacted by his weight and in contact with the cold earth, is not half enough to keep out the bone-searching chill that comes up from the damp ground. This will never do. Pneumonia or rheumatism will follow. He arises, this time for good, and passes a wretched night before the fire, and Don finds him a haggard, worn-out type of misery, disgusted with camp life and eager to hit the back trail for home. The moral is plain. This sort of roughing it is bad enough when one is compelled to submit to it. It kills twice as many soldiers as bullets do. When it is endured merely to show off one's fancied toughness and hardihood, it is rank folly. Even the dumb beasts know better, and they are particular about making their beds. This matter of a good portable bed is the most serious problem in outfitting. A man can stand almost any hardship by day and be none the worse for it, provided he gets a comfortable night's rest. But without sound sleep, he will soon go to pieces, no matter how gritty he may be. Cots For camping in summer or in early autumn, when means of transportation permit it, the best camp bed is a compactly folding cot, such as is specially made for military and sportsmen's use. It weighs but 16 pounds and folds into a package 3 feet by 4 inches by 5 inches. A thin mattress of cotton or curled hair, or a doubled comforter as a substitute, is of even more importance on such a cot than the blanket that one covers himself with, for to sleep on taut canvas with nothing but a blanket under you is little more restful than lying on a board floor, and if the nights are chilly, you will suffer from cold underneath. A cot and mattress, when you can carry them, save much time and work in bed-making and tent-trenching, and they keep the bedding clean, besides affording a comfortable lounge by day. A cot, however, is not at all comfortable in real cold weather, however, 
because no matter how much bedding you have, you cannot keep it tucked in snugly around you, owing to the narrowness of the cot. Mattresses. But suppose you are traveling light, perforce. What then? Cot or no cot, the first requisite is a mattress of some sort, either ready-made or extemporized on the spot. An air mattress is luxurious but expensive, unreliable and cold in zero weather, and useless of punctured. But for summer camping, especially by us middle-aged or older fellows, who may have grown a trifle stiff and rheumatic from many a night on the bare damp ground, it is a perquisite fairly won. Cork mattresses are favored by such canoeists as are not obliged to make long portages, being easily dried and making good life preservers. But they are rather bulky, and none too soft nor warm. Down quilts, though the warmest covering for their weight, are not warm underneath one's body as the pressure squeezes out their confined air. A canvas stretcher swung on long poles makes a good spring bed for hot weather, but if the nights are chilly, there will be a cold draught along the floor, always the coldest part of a tent which will soon chill one to the bone. If it can be made double, forming a bag open at both ends that can be stuffed with grass or browse, it is improved. But any such contrivance takes considerable time to rig up properly, and the tent may not be long enough for the poles and their supports. Browse Beds Nearly every book and magazine article on camping that I have read extols a bed of balsam browse shingled in between a pair of logs. Balsam is good, but, unfortunately, Throughout the greater part of our country there is no balsam, nor even hemlock, nor spruce, nor any other kind of tree that affords even passable browse in the fall for this sort of bed. For all-round service in all sorts of countries, I prefer to carry with me a narrow bag of ten-cent bed ticking, two and a half feet wide and six and a fourth foot long, to be filled with grass, leaves, or other such soft stuff as one may find on the camping ground. Such a bag weighs but one and a third pounds, takes up little room when empty, is useful in packing, and a man can make a good mattress with it, one that will not spread out nor pack hard, in less than half the time it would take to shingle brows or rig up a stretcher. If wet stuff must be used for filling, spread the rubber blanket or poncho on top of the bag, and all will be well. Bedding. Blankets should be all wool and firmly woven so as to shed dirt. California blankets are best than Hudson Bay or Mackinac. The quality of our regular army blanket is excellent for the purpose, but do not get one that is narrow and folds at the end. You cannot roll up in it so snugly as if it were almost square. For extremely cold climates, nothing equals a robe, not bag, of caribou hide with the hair on, as it is warmer and drier for its bulk and weight than other material. A separate pillow bag to be filled in camp like the bed tick is another soft thing that no experienced woodsman despises. For horsemen, a saddle is supposed to be all the pillow needed, but is nothing of the sort. A mound of earth is better. Sleeping bags. Sleeping bags have their good and bad qualities. Those which open only part way down are abominations, hard to get into and out of, and hard to air properly and to dry. No matter how waterproof the outside cover may be, the blanket or fur lining will surely get damp, both from the air and from the exudations of the sleeper. The only sleeping bags worth considering are those that can be easily opened and spread wide in the sunlight or before the fire, which should be done every morning. Even so, they cannot so quickly be aired and dried as blankets, unless the lining is entirely removable from the cover. An explorer of wide experience in both the Arctic and Antarctic regions gives his opinion of sleeping bags as follows. For the first two or three days, 
the sleeping bag is a thing of comfort and a joy, and then it gradually gets worse and worse. The perspiration that collects in the bag during the night freezes immediately. We leave it in the morning, and there is not sufficient heat from the sun to dry the bag when it is packed on the sledge. The bag, therefore, has to be thawed out by our bodies each night so that it gradually becomes heavy with moisture and more and more uninviting. Lieutenant Armitage, two years in the Antarctic. It is snug for a while to be laced up in a bag, but not so snug when you roll over and find that some aperture at the top is letting a stream of cold air run down your spine, and that your weight and cooped-upness prevent you from readjusting the bag to your comfort. Likewise, a sleeping bag may be an unpleasant trap to be in when a squall springs up suddenly at night or the tent catches fire. I think that one is more likely to catch cold when emerging from a stuffy sleeping bag into the cold air than if he had slept between loose blankets. A waterproof cover without any opening except where your nose sticks out is no more wholesome to sleep in than a rubber boot is wholesome for one's foot. Nor is such a cover of much practical advantage except underneath. The notion that it is any substitute for a roof overhead on a rainy night is a delusion. Blankets can be wrapped around one more snugly. They do not condense moisture inside, and they can be thrown open instantly in case of alarm. In blankets you can sleep double in cold weather. Taking it all in all, I choose the separate bed tick, pillow bag, poncho, and blanket, rather than the same bulk and weight of any kind of sleeping bag that I have so far experimented with. There may be better bags that I have not yet tried. The carry-all. There is a form of camp bed known as a carry-all that deserves mention. It may be described as a bag open at both ends, with a flap on each side to cover the sleeper, and shorter flaps for feet and head, the whole being made of stout waterproofed canvas and fitted with straps and buckles. Two large pockets at the head end contain spare clothing, and thus form a pillow for the night. The blankets and other articles can be rolled up within this cover, and the whole affair is then quickly buckled up, making a convenient pack, rainproof all around. The bag part of the affair can be stuffed full of browse, grass, or other such bedding as the country affords, and poles can be run through it at either side and across the ends, so as to form either a spring bed or a hammock. The chief objection to this contrivance, as now made, is its weight, which is ten pounds. A cotton bed tick, pillow bag, silk shelter cloth, and poncho of pantasote sheeting together weigh only six and a half pounds, and each of them is good for something by itself when you are on the trail. The addition of a good heavy blanket brings the weight up to about fifteen pounds for one man's bedding, pack cloth, and shelter, and these are plenty for anybody until frost set in. Shelter Cloth the shelter cloth he referred to is of waterproofed balloon silk, seven by eight feet, with eyelets, small seal rings sewed on by hand, not mere metal eyelets, round the edges at intervals about a foot, the contrivance weighing from two to two and a half pounds. This makes a small roll on top of one's knapsack, or serves as a pack cloth. It makes a good shelter or windbreak when one takes a side trip of a day or two from camp. Such side trips are generally the pleasantest and most profitable days in my experience. One sees more, learns more, and gets closer to nature when he is far off in the woods by himself than when he is around camp or hunting with companions. Individual Cooking Kits To the same end, it is well to take with you an individual cooking kit. This is not formidable. A frying pan and a large tin cup with the sheath knife are sufficient, though a quart pail is a useful addition. Instead of a frying pan for such trips, I like a U.S. Army mess kit, procured from a dealer in second-hand military equipment for twenty cents. 
It consists of two oval dishes of tin steel which fit together and form a meat can eight inches long, six and a half inches wide, and one and a half inches deep, weighing three-fourths of a pound. In this, a ration of meat is carried on the march. When the dishes are separated, the lower one serves the plate and is deep enough for soup. The upper dish has a folding handle which locks the two together and makes a fair frying pan. The Preston individual cooking kit, made of aluminum, is commendable for those who care to spend more money on such a thing. It can be procured from army outfitters. Sheath Knives On the subject of hunting knives, I intended to be diffuse. In my green and callow days, perhaps not yet over, I tried nearly everything in the knife line from a shoemaker's skiver to a machete, and I had knives made to order. The conventional hunting knife is, or was until quite recently, of the familiar dime novel pattern invented by Colonel Bowie. Such a knife is too thick and clumsy to whittle with, much too thick for a good skinning knife, and too sharply pointed to cook and eat with. It is always tempered too hard. When put to the rough service for which it is supposed to be intended, as in cutting through the ossified false ribs of an old buck, it is an even bet that out will come a nick as big as a sawtooth, and charade in forty miles from a grindstone. Such a knife is shaped expressly for stabbing, which is about the very last thing that a woodsman ever has occasion to do, our lamented grandmothers to the contrary notwithstanding. A camper has use for a common-sense sheath-knife, sometimes for dressing big game, but oftener for such homely work as cutting sticks, slicing bacon, and frying spuds. For such purposes a rather thin, broad-pointed blade is required, and it need not be over four or five inches long. Nothing is gained by a longer blade, and it would be in one's way every time he sat down. Such a knife, bearing the marks of hard usage, lies before me. Its blade and handle are each four and one-fourth inches long, the blade being one inch wide, one-eighth inch thick on the back, broad-pointed, and continued through the handle as a hasp and riveted to it. It is tempered hard enough to cut green hardwood sticks, but soft enough so that when it strikes a knot or bone, it will, if anything, turn rather than nick. Then a whetstone soon puts it into order. The Abyssinians have a saying, If a sword bends, we can straighten it, but if it breaks, who can mend it? So with a knife or hatchet. The handle of this knife is of oval cross-section, long enough to give a good grip for the whole hand, and with no sharp edges to blister one's hand. It has a one-fourth inch knob behind the cutting edge as a guard, but there is no guard on the back, for it would be useless and in the way. The handle is of light but hard wood, three-fourth inch thick at the butt, and tapering to one-half inch forward, so as to enter the sheath easily and grip it tightly. If it were heavy, it would make the knife drop out when I stooped over. The sheath has a slit frog binding tightly on the belt, and keeping the knife well up on my side. This knife weighs only four ounces. It was made by a country blacksmith, and is one of the homeliest things I ever saw, but it has outlived in my affections the score of other knives that I have used in competition with it, and has done more work than all of them put together. Jackknives For ordinary whittling, a good jackknife is needed. It should have one heavy blade, two and three quarters or three inches long, tempered hard enough for seasoned hickory, but thick enough not to nick or snap off. Also a small thin blade that will take a keen edge and keep it. The best pattern is an easy opener, which has part of the handle cut away so that one can open it without using his thumbnail, which may be wet and soft or brittle from the cold. There should be no sharp edges on the handle, which is preferable of ebony. Hatchets A woodsman should carry a hatchet, and he should be as critical in selecting it as in buying a gun.
The notion that a heavy hunting knife can do the work of a hatchet is a delusion. When it comes to cleaving carcasses, chopping kindling, blazing thick bark trees, driving tent pegs or trap stakes, and keeping up a bivouac fire, the knife never was made that will compare with a good tomahawk. The common hatchets of the hardware stores are unfit for a woodsman's use. They have broad, thin blades with beveled edge, and they are generally made of poor, brittle stuff. A camper's hatchet should have the edge and temper of a good axe. It must be light enough to carry in one's belt or knapsack, yet it should bite deep in timber. There is but one way to get this seemingly contradictory result, and that is to make the blade long and narrow, like an Indian tomahawk, or like a Nesmuk double blade, thus putting the weight where it will do the most good. When there is a full-grown axe in camp, I carry a tomahawk of 12-ounce head. The handle is just a foot long, its grip is wound with wax twine to give a good hold when one's hand is wet. This little tool has been my mainstay on several bitter nights when I was lost in the forest, or in a cane break, and without it I would have fared badly. For a canoeing trip, or any journey on which a full-sized axe cannot be taken with the camping equipment, a half-axe with two-pound head and eighteen-inch handle is about right. With it, one can fell trees big enough for an all-night fire made Indian fashion. If such a tool is carried from the belt, seldom advisable, its muzzle should be attached by a frog that works on a loose rivet, thus forming a hinge joint. Then the handle will swing freely from brush and will not be in the way when you sit down. Whetstone. For a light and quick-cutting hone to keep knives and hatchet in order, take a piece of cigar box about two by six inches and glue to each side a strip of emery cloth coarse on one side, fine on the other. Or, if you don't mind the weight, get a quite small double whetstone, coarse and fine on opposite sides. This may be carried in a light leather wallet, along with the following articles. Emergency kit. Small coil of copper snare wire. Needle and thread. Safety pins. One or two short fishing lines, rigged. Spare hooks. Minnow hooks, with half the barb filed off for catching bait. These things with your gun, a dozen rounds of ammunition, hatchet, knives, matches, compass, map, money, pipe, and tobacco should always be with you, or where they can be snatched up at a grab in case of emergency. Then you are always fixed. Compass. If a needle compass is chosen, try to get one with a pearl point on the north end of the needle. It is easier to see in dark weather and easily remembered. If you must put up with a common one in which the north end of the needle is merely blackened, scratch B equals N, black equals north, on the case. This seems like an absurd precaution, does it not? Well, it will not seem so if you get lost. The first time that a man loses his bearings in the wilderness, his wits refuse to work. He cannot, to save his life, remember whether the black end of the needle is north or south. A card compass is better than the one with the needle, if the case is deep enough for the card to traverse freely when inclined but it is more bulky. Timepiece. An expensive watch should be left at home. A dollar watch is good enough where there are no trains to catch. Take with you the sheets of an almanac for the months in which you will be out. They are useful to regulate the watch, show the moon's changes, and buy them to determine the day of the month and week which one is apt to forget when he is away from civilization. Matchbox. Do not on any account omit a waterproof matchbox preferably of such pattern as has a cover that cannot drop off. A bit of candle is a good thing to carry in one's pouch to start fire in a driving rain. Maps 
procure, if possible, a good map of the region to be visited. The best maps for any part of the United States for which they have been published are the topographical sheets issued by the U.S. Geological Survey and sold at five cents each. A list of those published up to date can be had by applying to the director, U.S. Geological Survey, Washington, D.C. Most of these sheets are on a scale of two miles to the inch. They are printed in three colors and show every watercourse, big or little, every road and important trail, bridges, ferries, fords, mines, settlements, and, what is of high importance to a traveler, they give contour lines, usually for every hundred feet in mountainous regions, and at lesser intervals for more level country. I regret to say that these sheets are of uneven merit. Some of them are accurate, while others, particularly of the wild mountainous districts, are filled with details that exist only in the draughtsman's imagination. Thorough revision of many sheets is urgently needed. Maps should be cut up into sections about four by six inches, numbered, and carried, together with a key map that one makes himself, in an envelope made of tracing cloth. The required sheet is placed on top and can be made out through the envelope without removing it, thus protecting the map from tearing, soiling, wet, and from blowing away. Stationary. Notebooks should be of such paper as is ruled in squares, which are useful in rough mapping and sketching. Take along some postal cards and a timetable of the road by which you expect to return. Wear a money belt. Gold coin is more trusty than banknotes, as one is liable to get a ducking at any time. Quarter eagles are best, being more easily changed by country folks than higher denominations. Medicines. In the matter of medicines, every man must take into account his personal equation and the ills to which he is most subject. But there are certain risks that we all run in common when we venture far from civilization, such as wounds, fractures, snake bites, attacks of venomous insects, malaria, foot soreness, ivy poisoning, and others that will be mentioned in the chapter on accidents. As for myself, no matter how light I travel, I always carry either in a pocket or in my hunting pouch a soldier's first aid packet. This can be procured from a dealer in surgical instruments or from a camp outfitter. It contains two antiseptic compresses of sublimated gauze, an antiseptic bandage, an Esmark triangular bandage with cuts printed on it showing how to bandage any part of the body, and two safety pins, enclosed in a waterproof cover, the whole being very light and compact. In snake time I also keep by me, at all times, a hypodermic syringe with tubes of potassium permanganate and strychnine, the use of which will be explained hereafter. A permanganate solution will precipitate a sediment in a week or two. It is better to carry separately the crystals and a little vial of distilled water. A small bottle of unguentine and some cathartic pills generally complete the list for a short trip. When going far from medical or surgical aid, I might pack along a box containing the following kit. Three-inch artery forceps and a needle holder combined. Tooth forceps. Surgeon's needles. Two straight medium, one curved medium, one curved small. Surgeon's silk, coarse and fine. Catgut ligatures. Three two-inch-old bandages. One-yard sublimated gauze in bottle. Absorbent cotton. Mustard plasters. Belladonna plasters. Hypodermic syringe. Bernays antiseptic tablets. Potassium permanganate. Half-grain tablets. Cocaine and morphine tablets. Cocaine, one to five grains. Morphine, 1 to 40 grains. Sodium chloride, 1 to 5 grains. Local anesthetic. 
morphine, one-fourth grain, and atropine, one to 150 grain tablets. Intense pain. Strychnine sulfate, one to 30 grain tablets. Surgical shock, etc. Quinine, three grain capsules. Malaria, etc. Sun cholera tablets. Dysentery, etc. Seneca compound tablets. Coughs, colds. Compound cathartic pills. Soda mint tablets. Sour stomach, heartburn, ivy poisoning. Trienol, sleeplessness. Unguentine, burns, sunburn, insect bites, bruises. McClintock's germicidal soap, cleansing wounds. Vaseline, eight ounces of brandy, and two small bottles. The potassium permanganate, cocaine, morphine, sodium chloride, and strychnine sulfate tablets are carried in the hypodermic case. One such kit is enough for a large party. It will be used mostly on the natives. An ulcerated tooth is a bad thing to fight in the wilderness. Grizzly bears are nothing to it. Some natives have an unpleasant way of extracting an aching molar, a bit at a time, by prying it out with an awl. Paul Kruger used to cut his out with a knife. A word to the wise is sufficient. Forceps. Fly dopes. When traveling in the south or southwest, anywhere from Missouri down, I add a four-ounce bottle of chloroform, which, after exhaustive experiments, I have found to be the only thing that can be depended upon to put triggers, red bugs, to sleep in the cuticle of H. Keppert. I will pay my respects to these microscopic fiends, and to other torments of the woods and swamps, in the chapter on pests, wherein will also be found various formulas for fly dopes to which the reader is referred. In spring and autumn I usually carry a tiny vial of oil of anise, which is very attractive to various animals whose acquaintance I will wish to cultivate, from bees to bears. One drop of anise will lure for half a mile radius. Acids. In hot weather it is well to carry, each for himself, a little citric acid, if there are no lemons in the outfit. The crystals added to the water will make a refreshing lemonade, and they are valuable to neutralize alkaline water and make it potable. Wythe's lemonade tablets are still better. When much water is to be corrected, as when making a long trip through an alkaline country, it is preferable to use hydrochloric muriatic acid. One teaspoonful to the gallon of water. Clothes bag. Spare clothing should be packed in a bag by itself. It is well to make this in a sow bag shape, one side to be used for clean clothes and the other for soiled ones the whole serving as a pillow if you have no regular pillow bag. For an ordinary trip, the following will suffice. Jersey or sweater, two undershirts, two pairs drawers, three pairs socks, spare overshirt, moccasins, gloves, three handkerchiefs, woolen pajamas, not linen, if you have room. In the summer, add a head net. In winter, German socks, lumberman's rubbers, if you cannot get shanks, knit cap, and a pair of mitts. Toilet bag. In a sponge bag, carry towel, old and soft, soap, comb, toothbrush, pocket mirror, the soap in a soft rubber tobacco pouch, the razor and strop if you carry them, go elsewhere. If you smoke, stow a spare pipe in your kit. The Coos eunuch will get one, sure. If you wear glasses, take along an extra pair. Repair kit. In one's camp kit, it is advisable to have a whole doll or a japanned box 
in which are kept such things as these, contents varying, of course, according to personal requirements. Rifle rod and brush, gun grease, cut wipers, oiled rags, screwdriver, T-shaped, folding with three blades, six-inch half-round bastard file, a few assorted nails and tacks, two sizes soft wire, side-cutting, parallel pliers, pocket tape measure, pocket scales, scissors, all, waxed ends, get a shoemaker to make them for you if you don't know how, sewing and darning needles, linen thread, beeswax, strong twine, darning cotton, spare buttons, safety pins, split rivets, small pieces of mending cloth and leather, a rawhide belt lace, one dozen large rubber bands. In fitting up such a repair kit, be sparing of bulk and weight. Of nails, wire, rivets, include only enough for a few small jobs. Goggles. In winter, it pays to carry a pair of smoke-colored goggles to prevent snow blindness. Likewise in summer, if you are much on the water. These are better than green or blue ones because they are less opaque and there is less loss of color in objects seen through them. They should fit well. The glasses should be surrounded by fine wire gauze, the edges covered with velvet, and the part crossing the bridge of the nose similarly covered. The Eskimo kind of eye shades are better for high latitudes than glasses. They consist of two wooden discs, each with a T-shaped slit cut in to see through, with a narrow strap to go over the bridge of the nose and another to go around the head. Such shades give perfect vision, do not collect moisture, and when removed, do not give the sensation of darkness that is experienced after removing colored glasses. Pouch A pantasote pouch, 10 by 12 inches, is a convenient receptacle for small stores and makes a good carrier for one's necessities when he is traveling without a coat. For a knapsack, the pattern used by our regular infantry is as good as any. Canteen A canteen should not be a cheap affair merely covered with flimsy flannel, but one of service pattern, encased in felt and this covered with duck. If the outside is immersed when the canteen is filled, it will keep three pints of water cool for several hours. Filled with hot water at night, it makes a comfortable addition to one's blanket on a cold night. Pocket Rifle Every camper is supposed to have his own ideas about guns, fishing tackle, boats, and cameras. I will offer no advice here about any of these things beyond saying that a fisherman or anyone else who takes his vacation in the woods at a time when most game is out of season may do well to carry a twenty-two caliber rifle or a pocket rifle for such small deer as may be available for the pot, not overlooking the comestible frog. A pocket rifle with fifteen-inch barrel and skeleton stock is almost as easily carried as a pistol and can be shot with much greater precision. If a telescope sight of three or four diameters, not more, is mounted on it, you can drive tacks with the tiny bullet at forty feet and hit squirrels in the head nearly every time at thirty yards, if you are a marksman. The best twenty-two cartridges are the long rifle, not to be confounded with the inferior twenty-two long, the twenty-two seven and the twenty-two automatic. See that the rifle is specially chambered and rifled for one or other of these. They are very accurate up to a hundred yards or more. For a detailed discussion of rifles for big game hunting, I may refer to my chapter on the hunting rifle in the book entitled Guns, Ammunition, and Tackle, American Sportsman's Library, edited by Casper Whitney, New York, Macmillan. End of chapter 3, Personal Kits. Recording by Nathan Heck.